What's up, folks? This is May 15th, Investor Weekly News Update, where I'm going to be talking about the latest interest rate hikes. Is this about the end of it? Is the Fed going to keep it there? And then we'll end with a little bit of an investor question asking, what are we looking at targeting these days? So first off, you guys haven't seen the Fed raised rates last week, quarter point. And this is just a, a great graphic that I've been looking at lately from the visual capitalists where they've put on a chart the last several interest rate hikes and you can see how they are in relation to each other and also the speed the velocity and the speed and velocity that's been accelerated this past 2022-2023 barrage of interest rate hikes has been the most aggressive of all time. Um, there's been a time where it's gone up a little bit higher, but this is definitely the highest time, which I think not a lot of real estate investors or certainly the average general public out there isn't really impacted by. But what this really wrecks havoc on are especially real estate operators like us who buy rate caps and not to mention the interest rate that we pay. And what's really also affecting is the loans of values that we can get. It used to be maybe a year or two, two ago, we were getting 5% interest rate and 75% loan to value. Now the rate hasn't seemed to go that high, but it's always, they take it away from somewhere else. And so today, maybe you're looking at a five and a half interest rate, not that much difference, but as far as loan to value, you're looking, instead of getting 75% loan to value, you're looking at getting 50% loan to value or 65% loan to value, which is a huge deal killer in bio opinion. Well, actually, I'll say we haven't really been doing deals this past year because I can't really make deals work when I don't have that type of leverage. Um, and we've got to put in 50 cents on every dollar to go buy the same assets that were around a year ago, even if prices came down 10, 20%. But I think this gives a lot of historical context. A lot of the rumors now or the futures are saying, I think the latest thing from the Wall Street Journal, they said 36% chance uh, based off the futures, right? Where people actually have skin in the game and money, which I put more emphasis on the futures than what a bunch of economists are saying, right? Who don't really have skin in the game and aren't really betting their own money, something to lose there. Putting all these latest interest rate hikes on a chart here, you can see the different durations of how long it took them to increase it there. You know, we're at the plateau, like I said. I personally think that there might be another half a quarter point and maybe one more. I would probably be willing to bet that is it, not to be a pessimistic or awesome, but just to be a, a, a disinterested gambler, I guess. But I actually am. I've got a lot of skin in the game in all of this, of course, but that's... From what I see, what I hear, what I see in the futures markets, that's pretty much what's happening. And so the next big prop bet that's on the table is how long is the Fed going to keep the interest rates where they're at? In years past, it's the last several times this has happened, they will drop the rates about a third to a half of the time that it went to go up. Looking at some of these, there it took 24 months for it to go up. In less than a year, it was right back to where it was. Of course, that will be expedited if any type of big black swan event happens or even small black swan event happens. I think a lot of the questions that I've been getting lately, what if there is a recession next year? So there is going to be. I'm already accounting for it. I already am assuming it. And when that happens, that is when the Fed cuts back their dry powder and lowers interest rates, which is exactly why 
they raise interest rates in the first place, they can get this dry powder to pull a lever when the recession does come through. So in this latest interest rate from March 22 to May of 2023, which will probably still go up for another few months after this. So maybe instead of being 14 months, let's just call it 20 months to be on the safe side and to use a nice round number. In years past, if you see what the Fed used to do, they'd drop it a third to a half in that period. So you know, you'd probably be looking at about 10 months, maybe a little less than that, if the past is setting any precedence. Of course, you know, what happened in the past does not indicate what's happening in the future, even though that's happened the last several times. We don't know. What, there's uncertainty. One would reasonably expect that anywhere from 10 months to maybe a couple of years might be the time window where it might you know, take to lower the interest rates back to where it was. Why is the Fed doing this? Of course, I've talked about this several times. The Fed is trying to get to that inflation down to 2%. I don't think that is reasonable. And now there's a lot of talk about why use the CPI? Why not just core inflation, take out housing, take out all these other things like how they have in the past, like energy and oil, right? To heat your house and run your car. But I think you're going to see a lot of manipulation to change, get off that standard of the CPI to something else so the Fed can pat themselves on the back. That's just a little bit of my commentary there. But I don't think it's possible to get it back to 2% CPI. That might be just something where it reminds me of when I was like a construction supervisor, the company would always say, we're going to have zero injuries this year. That's nonsense. We have 50,000 employees. There's going to be people that get hurt. But that's what management does, right? They make these hierarchy goals like that. And I see it the same thing. The Fed's saying, we're going to get to 2% CPI. Not possible. Everybody just laughs and shakes their heads. And again, the future market is accounting for that, right? They all think that the Fed is a little audacious there and there are hierarchy goals. Maybe to get to two and a half, three percent, I think that might be more reasonable and maybe more reasonable for the modern age, as there's always a movement in that. You're seeing some other annual growth in labor costs, analyzed GDP, GDP growth growth has drastically changed since where we were coming off the highs in 2022. And these are all good signs. Even when the Fed stops increasing interest rates, which might be now or might be in six months from now, uh, I think that's on the long end. You're going to see the slack happen and that you're going to start to see this stuff still come down after the fact as you know, there is, it's not a, it's not a immediate thing that happens. Again, this is coming from the Wall Street Journal. It seems that the Fed may pause in June and then start cutting rates again. I think that might be optimistic. I'm always looking at things from a neutral to negative standpoint, at least how I'm seeing, just trying to protect myself and the deals that we're in. Like I said, the Fed future funds market, which are those of the guys who have skin in the game that are actually betting on all this, they're indicating the likelihood of a rate cut in July with a 36% chance of that happening. If we look further ahead in September, which is the next Fed meeting, um, there's a 22% chance of two rate cuts happening at that point. But of course, that's a parlay, right? It needs to first happen in July to happen in September. But the Fed has obviously been tight-lipped about this because they're looking at multiple things and they don't want to say things and look bad. Although, from if you've been watching the exact words that they've been saying since the past year, They've pretty much been spot on in the, even though they use vague terminology on purpose. 
if you guys would like to get the part one of our kimono quarterly report where i go into a lot of this in detail you guys can get access to that by signing up for our group at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. And you got to fill up a little form so we know who you are as we are not one of these faceless groups out there. We are big on community and big on relationships, which is why we invite all you guys who are listening to the podcast, get onboarded with a call with myself and hopefully we'll meet in person in June 23rd to 25th in San Diego, California. We've got a great event for a lot, especially for a lot of you guys who are looking to test drive our organization out for the very first time. That's really why we make these events. My life changed when I finally got around other accredited investors. And this was after investing for almost a decade, buying these little peddly little rental properties. It wasn't until I met other purely passive accredited investors, not the new investors, the wholesaling houses, flipping houses, or the ones with several rental properties or less. So I really started to meet other investors similar to myself. I really didn't start to move from there. So if you guys want to see you in San Diego, meet myself, meet the team, meet some of the other investors, you can check that out at simplepassacashflow.com slash stateside. And you guys can get on the list there. Again, that's June 23rd to 25th, a couple of days. It's a lot of fun. Check out the video of the last event. We actually just finished that video lately for those of you guys who are more visual learners. <laughs> Eli is like those videos with the, the shots of Hawaii. So Yahoo Finance, they're talking about inflation here. Consumer prices in April rise at the slowest annual rate in two years. This is all good news. CPI revealed the headline inflation rose 0.4% over last month and 4.9% year prior in April. Prices rose in March 0.1% on a monthly basis and 5% from the prior year. Economists is expected prices in April to rise 0.4% month over month and 5% over last year, according to Bloomberg. So this 4.9% annual increase, which is about half of where we used to be, although cooler than March's gain is still significantly above that Federal Reserve's 2% target, which we mentioned, which... Quite frankly, I don't really think it's possible. The Fed has been rising interest rates in an effort to bring down inflation, but central banks are set sending the economy into recession by raising rates too high too fast. That last line is, I think, appeasing to Yahoo Finance's general audience public. I always look at the Fed as a little bit more of a benevolent organization. Sure, they raise rates and they screw over a lot of the other third world countries, especially the African countries, but that's another more other thing. If you guys are interested in that, you guys can Google that. Since we all t- pretty much live in America here, we got to go along with the flow because it ultimately helps us strengthen our currency in the end. More importantly for now in the short term, this is the Fed is trying to keep inflation within a reasonable levels and so that they can Keep the highs not as high and more important, the lows in the economy not as low. So when a recession does get induced next year, they have interest rates to cut to stimulate the economy. Levers to pull, dry powder to utilize, whatever you want to call it. That's how the economy or the Fed works in a nutshell. But for some reason, like these mainstream news sources likes, likes to villainize the Fed as being the bad guy. So Oren Kochkin, the lead economist in Oxford economics, probably doesn't have that much net worth and just works at a university and doesn't have any skin in the game. More importantly, says 
We expect to receive more encouraging news on the inflation front as the economy cools, though we won't reach the Fed 2%'s target for quite some time. Yeah, I could probably could have told you what Oren told you right there. If you guys want to check out past investor letter calls, you guys can go to simplepassivecastle.com slash investor letter, where we archive all these weekly updates there. So data from Bank of America Institute reveals households making more than $125,000 a year have seen wage growth slow down faster than lower income households, while spending trends have followed a similar pattern. Higher income household discretionary spending on Bank of America credit cards and debit cards have slipped below lower and middle income groups since the start of this year. Of course, we're already talking about Bank of America clients, which might be skewed in some way, but I think generally Bank of America clients, they have a lot, they're a big bank. And I think, feel like they're demographically distributed. Let's take a look. So what they're saying here is, that the higher end folks are have dipped their um, spending more than the low end, which is the red line here, and the middle tier. Oh, the blue is the low end, and the red is the kind of the middle people. Don't know what that really means per se, but you know, I think the one interesting thing here is you started to see this, there's differences between where people are in the income range. And what they're saying here is they're seeing weakness in consumer-facing markets, says 3M. And then Amazon is saying warning of cautious spending, which I would probably agree, right? Like the whole, people are always talking about fear, doom, and gloom with the word recession. Definitely the word recession has come up the last year as a lot of the public narrative is like the Fed is increasing rates since of last summer and they're all going to screw us and they're going to hurt the economy. And it, it, that, maybe that's exactly what needs to be done to scare the general public into stop spending your guys' money like it's going out of style. Save it, which normal people should do, right? But that's what's happening. And then here's a, a report from, I believe this is are Shandon Economics. So this is a breakdown of commercial, residential, or multifamily assets, so bigger stuff. So I've got a few charts here. People have been asking, like, how are things changing within the industry? First thing is expense ratios have gone up by quite a bit. What are expense ratios? Expense ratios is all the expenses on your budget, you know, like landscaping, payroll, taxes. The biggest is insurance, which we've seen jump up 2 to 3x just in the past few years. Part of that is a lot of hurricanes in the Gulf and that whole southern hemisphere of the United States. But part of that is inflation too. But you've seen this chart here, right? There's a general rise, a huge rise in expense ratios, and that's contributed directly to inflation. It costs more to employ the right people. That's just been a part of the industry. And, and this is what we call stagflation, right? Where rents go up a little bit or stay flatline, your expenses go way, way up. And that's where we are in the market. And I don't know if that's a long-term trend or a more of a cyclical thing. I think this is why like, we're making the movement more towards cleaner developments where we have these expense ratio like there's no capex to do on a new asset for a decade or a little bit maybe a little bit more and operation expenses little small things like 
having to do pair little HVACs here or put some duct tape on pipes. I don't really put duct tape on pipes, but using that metaphor, you don't really have that with new assets. And the biggest thing for me is not really having to deal with difficult tenants who don't pay. And as that's a great transition to the next chart we have here, how do things look in terms of people paying full rent on time? And you're seeing a slight uptick in people paying less and less full. And right now, you saw things dip there in, in 2020, where we had that spike. And then now, it, that, that was a tough time for a lot of people, right? A lot of eviction moratoriums and a lot of tenants, they didn't know what were the opportunities for them not to pay rent, some paid rent, right? So that's where you saw this drop from the about the 80% range down to the 75% range, I would say. I'd say this is generally good news, right? You're starting to see this people paying full rent on time a little bit higher. Now, this is just a binary thing that they're showing in this. This is not that 85.5% of rents are being collected. This is just how many people got 100% on the tests, for example, right? Many times when people don't pay, they'll pay half or a fraction. So that's what not what this is accounting for. This is just did people pay fully, right? Did they have 100% attendance or they get 100% on tests? Think about it like that. But it's, I think it does a great job of magnifying that. I think this is something for a lot of people, especially our clients to understand or our investor clients is according to this, about 15% of people don't pay all their rent on time. And that's, I think that is a culture shock for a lot of people. That was a big culture shock for me when I first started to invest in Alabama and about a fifth of the time, the person was late and they had to pay a late fee of 40, 50 bucks. And here I am. I'm like, why the heck would anybody do that? What's wrong with them? That was my immaturity. And that was just my tone. I don't know if that's tone deaf or not, but like I just, at the time I didn't understand that, but that's how a lot, majority of the people in America live paycheck to paycheck, which is why they can't save money, which is why they're probably going to be living in apartments for the rest of their lives or renting single family homes, small multifamily loan to value. So this is what I said in the beginning at the top. And if you took the average of multifamily loans from the start, you know, you're seeing a peak prior to 2020 of 70% of loan to value in loans. And you're seeing with the latest distress in the capital markets, you're seeing that drop down to 60%. And you're seeing this drastic decrease in the amount of loan the value that operators are able to get. And I think that's a game that the banks play, right? Like the, they take it from one or the other, either your loan to value or your interest rate. Since in, investors and consumers, they watch that interest rate like a hawk. And not a lot of people are using the vernacular of loan to value, which is really, I think, maybe a bigger part of the whole picture in terms of your loan package. You know, they, they hide it from one, but take it away from the others. And it's like the, the BMW 3 Series, I don't know if this is right, but it's still $50,000. But 10 years ago, you got pretty much all the options where today you barely get anything. You barely get dynamic cruise control with that paying $50,000 for the base BMW 3 Series. Similar, right? This is all cat and mouse game that lenders and banks play. Um, and it's, we always look at it from like the holistic loan package, right? Which is... I would probably put my emphasis on loan to value than interest rate because I'm not 
in a deal for very long, especially in value add projects where I would rather have less money out of pocket in the beginning, a smaller down payment, then a higher, I can pay a higher interest rate. Of course, there's a lot of other intangibles, but yeah, the loan is not just the interest rate, it is loan to value. And now you're seeing this in a graphical chart here, how this has drastically come down. And quite frankly, this is why we really haven't been doing too much as of last summer, 2022, because the loan to value is just kill my deal. I can't make the deal work. I can't make the numbers work. Of course, a lot, some people are still doing deals because they need to do deals to get fees because they have a lot of payroll to pay. We've moved things around internally here so that we know we were never really heavy on manpower and staff. We always run things lean, you know, only people who add value as far as employees. But this is exactly why you're seeing all sorts of things happen out there. Uh, one of which people doing deals just to do deals to pay their payroll. Now, how to investor question come up. And if you guys want to submit questions, you guys can fill it in at simplepassacashflow.com slash question. But this question came up and it was like, where are you guys targeting these days? You guys are pulled back, but where are you guys looking at more? Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're focusing more on preferred equity because it is like a safer part of the capital stack. And I feel like it's prudent in this time where a lot of people are who are operators are having trouble getting good loan to values and debt packages. So you kind of fill that void on the preferred equity side is more of a gap funder, semi-long-term permanent debt there. And then on the other side, developing, right? Like why would I want to, a lot of these guys are buying properties for $180,000, $200,000 a unit for a class B that's 30, 40 years old. There's a lot more to a deal than just price per unit. But I think for a passive investor, you're not going through the P&Ls and that's just not part of being a passive investor doing that. Just look at the price per unit, quite frankly. A lot of these guys are buying something for $180,000, $200,000 a unit in class B areas that's 40, 50 years old. We're building it for one eighty. Tell me how that doesn't make sense for people to continue to tranche around in class B assets and then deal with those annoying tenants that have just so much problems and bring so much headaches. Obviously in the future, we'll kind of transition more and more into that stuff. But I think a lot of investors have still asked us, hey, can you guys find stuff that provide that cash flow and at least give us that? People like, we had some K1s come back where we got like 100% bonus depreciation or people put in a hundred grand and they got 80, $100,000 of losses that first year. Although you guys have heard me talk, that really only impacts people that make over $350,000 AGI and doing real estate professional status. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, please come to our event page. We have rotating events where we talk about this stuff on people's specific personal situations. You guys can sign up for those free webinars at simplepassivecashflow.com slash events to go ask your personal question there. Ask for a friend or say it's anonymous. That's the time to see it. Like I see more, a lot of investors trying to get all these passive losses that doesn't do them one good. So get it. Let's get educated. Let me help you guys out, right? Ask the right questions. If you guys haven't interacted with, join our investor club, simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. And let's knock out that intro call. Let's figure this stuff out, right? So you guys aren't wasting time chasing after things you don't personally need. So 
the question, what are we looking for in this kind of middle market space? We try and find deals that are in the 20 to $100 million range because what we're trying to do is we're trying to stay in this middle threshold. There are larger transactions out there that will typically go to the more institutions. They're less lucrative and they don't need to be because a lot of those institutional buyers are just investing lazy retirement money. A lot of you guys have it. It's your 401k stuff. It's the REIT stuff. They don't really need to make too much returns with it. So they can just place the money. And also they make money when they place money. <laughs> so they've been, they need to place money to pay their bills. One little anecdote I see lately is I think everybody has pulled back institutions and smaller investors alike and us, you know, in the middle too. But I'm starting to see a, those traction on a lot of the larger assets, which means a lot of the bigger institutions are starting to come back into the game. Because like I said, they got to pay the bills. They got to place capital just to place capital. So take it for what it is. That's just a little bit anecdote. Whereas on the smaller end, you're still seeing a lot of the buyer, the traditional buyers who are larger players like us, who will bring in $10, $20 million to buy a $20, $100 million asset. Still, you know, the slowness on that side. What we don't want to stay above for sure, and which I think why a lot of investors flock to the syndication fund model is it's just there's a lot of competition in the newer investor ranks, right? So buying under $5 million, maybe even under $10 million in assets. This is the mom and pa investor space. And this is also the unsophisticated investor. I think a lot of our investors, parents who might've been into real estate, they buy a property 40, 50 years ago for quarter million dollars and now it's worth $4 million. They didn't do anything to it. There's a lot of those investors and maybe some of the people who've done 1031 exchanges from a fourplex to a 16 unit to a 30 unit. Not a lot of sophistication in there. And a lot of times they overpay for the assets, which is why we like to stay heck away from those guys bidding each other up. And especially like a lot of the frenzy of people buying properties under 10, 20 units. You know, not until you get about 50, 60 units can you justify having a full-time leasing agent there and more importantly, a handyman to knock out small work orders without having to pay very expensive third-party vendors. Specifically talking like HVAC, for example, we'll get our HVAC guys trained on that so we can knock that stuff in-house on salary as opposed to bringing an outside guy and paying an arm and a leg for that. And that's why we stay in this middle run, just below the big fish, and high enough to stay away from the mom and pa investor, maybe more affluent families buying properties on their own. But with that, check out the YouTube channel and the podcast. Share it with your friends. And if you guys like this, please hit the video on YouTube if you're watching on that. And if you guys can, it's been a while since I asked for reviews on iTunes, Google Play. You guys check us out. Really appreciate that. Oh yeah, check out the book. If you guys want free access to the book, you can go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash book. If you guys liked it and changed your life a little bit, please go and buy the Kindle version for 99 cents and then drop a review there. I think we're at like 150 reviews. It's going to give us a lot of traction for the next book. And I would really appreciate that because then my parents will finally be proud of me that I have written a third book. That's at that point. But anyway, we'll see you guys next time.